well, why don't we just do it? We'll come up with something as we go. Like the old that's days. Kinda, that, that's kind of that's like season one, <laughs> we Marcus. Remember season one? Of our pants. We, we just started talking. We had no plan. We, we had just no got plan. Out. There was we no. Hit, we hit record. Actually, sometimes we didn't even hit record. Uh, there were there were days <laughs> where I forgot to hit record, and yet it, it worked. I mean, it largely worked. It sometimes worked. We had seven listeners then, but Those it worked. The days. How many do we have now? Seventeen. Roughly seven. Roughly seven. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I am an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Actually, a little under the weather. I think you probably hear it in in my voice. I'm going to try to fix it. Actually, I'm going to try to fix it in post. So you sound great. Hopefully no one will will hear it. But so I thought one way I could stop talking and rest my voice is to let one of our listeners uh, ask a question who sent us a voicemail. So I'm going to play that for you now. So good afternoon. My name is Darius. And my question is, I think we use the, 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 the term Hamas without identifying exactly what that is. I mean, is you know, there's 2 million people that live in Gaza Strip. You know, how many of those are Hamas? We say 40,000 fighters, I think you quoted. Um, however, does that, you know, that's the government of Gaza. Were they duly elected by the 2 million citizens that live there? Um, you know, are you a Hamas fighter if you're creating, you know, missiles and, and you enter the tunnels or, you know, how far does that extend? And then, you know, to the argument that, you know, Israel is going to neutralize Hamas, does that mean, you know, basically erasing, you know, 40,000 people and then stopping? And then you know, what does that create? So thank you, Darius, for that question. Darius didn't say where he's from, but I'm I'm hearing a Northern Virginia accent there. I think that's a, oh, that's, that's, a safe that's interesting because I was going to go with Burbank, California. Really interesting. Okay. Mm, yeah. Well, so so Darius wants to know, you know, who is Hamas really? When we talk about Hamas, what are we? Who are we talking about? And um, I think this is a good question, and because as we talked about last time, this, this kind of points to the the fuzziness around Israeli political goals in this current conflict. So the idea of eliminating Hamas, well, what does that mean, right? Because Hamas can mean different things depending on how you're talking about it. So I guess just to you know give my take on this question, I think the goal here is, from, from the Israeli perspective, is to focus on fighters and leadership. So the focus is Hamas militants. So I don't think it, it makes sense to think about Hamas as a political party in the same way you would like in, in a Western democracy. Hamas is a militant group. And so when Israel is talking about eliminating Hamas, they're talking about eliminating Hamas fighters and leadership, not like government people working to, you know, keep the lights on in, in Gaza. So that, that I think is the, the scope of what Israel is talking about. But the kind of other piece of this that I, I think Darius hits on here is that distinguishing between Hamas and not Hamas is a really difficult but very important task for the Israeli operation that's underway right now. And this is, I think, like the fundamental task of counterinsurgency, which is really what this is, distinguishing combatants from civilians, from non-combatants. And this is a very difficult task, right? And we've seen this every time we've seen a counterinsurgency. Um, and the U.S. has a lot of experience in how difficult this is. 
effective counterinsurgency, I think, requires really good intelligence, which Israel may or may not have as, as we kind of get into this this process. I think I think Israel, you know, starts from a position of strength in terms of its intelligence apparatus and how well it's been monitoring this threat. But, uh, you know, obviously there was a huge intelligence failure that led to the Hamas terrorist attacks that set off this whole conflict. And so, uh, you know, it, I think it's fair to question how good Israel's intelligence actually is in the sense of will it allow Israel to clearly identify where Hamas leaders are at any given time such that it can go after those leaders and not civilians. Um, so so one, one thing that you really need for an effective counterinsurgency operation is strong intelligence. But the other thing you have to be willing to do to do counterinsurgency effectively is put your own soldiers at risk because counterinsurgency requires kind of like getting out there into the city and understanding the the lay of the land and the and the ground truth as we say in the um intelligence business so like what who, who is working with who uh, you know tracking uh arms and other supplies back through the chain to the supplier and to the ultimate destination all that is the, the kind of on the ground work of counterinsurgency and in order to do that effectively you can't be firing drones you know, drones don't give you that kind of intelligence. You need to have soldiers on the ground, and that means putting soldiers at risk. And so there is always this trade-off between effectively distinguishing combatants from non-combatants and protecting your own troops. And I think this is the problem with the counterinsurgency is what makes counterinsurgency very difficult, particularly for for military organizations like Israel's that are actively trying to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. That is, they are concerned with not targeting civilians. And because that is a, a central concern of the IDF when they're undergoing this operation, that limits um, what they can do, right? And, and so uh, I think that um, there's this, this trade-off that Israel is going to be kind of struggling with throughout the conflict um, as, it, as it progresses. Marcus, what do you think about this question? No, I think that's right. I mean, the, the question is is a good one in the sense of like who is who is Hamas um, is like the answer to that is that there are lots of different things, right? I mean, they are a political organization clearly in the sense that they purport to represent the people uh, of Gaza, the Palestinians that are that are living there. They're clearly a military organization that they you know conduct attacks on on Israel. Their stated charter. Uh, is it basically to you know create the Palestinian state in the areas that they view of as being occupied uh, by Israel, and then they also, as you mentioned, provide you know sort of social welfare to a lot of the, the people that are living in in, uh, in Gaza. So it's a, it's an incredibly complex organization. I think when we talk about or when Israel talks about the goal of eliminating Hamas, what they really are talking about is neutralizing Hamas's capability to to carry out attacks like we we saw. Right? They want to prevent uh, Hamas from being able to. Um, you know, conduct terrorist operations or do any other attacks on, on in Israel. And if that is going to require actually taking out the entire leadership and saying Hamas is no longer in charge of Gaza, I think that that's a step that Israel is probably willing to to make or go to because they feel like this is so you know important to to Israel's um, security. So I think it's I think it's a good question to ask. What is this all about? I also agree completely that the the challenge that. Um, Israel finds itself in is that if it's an or if Hamas is an organization that, in, that has all of these different sort of pillars, they're doing Hamas is doing all kinds of different things. They also have personnel in Hamas or human beings in Hamas that are doing 
uh, all kinds of different things as well. Some of these leaders are political in nature. Some of them are, are military in nature. Some are terrorists, et cetera. So differentiating who these people are uh, can be very, very tricky. There's the added challenge that I think we mentioned on the previous podcast that, uh, you know, Gaza is incredibly you know small in many ways and also very densely populated. And so it's it's very easy, in a sense, for Hamas to sort of integrate itself into the civilian population. So, you know, when, when Israel goes in, uh, as we're seeing, and try, is trying to differentiate, is this a combatant, is this a non-combatant, it becomes all the more challenging precisely because you have this, you know, sort of very close quarters uh, living arrangement. And, and it requires, in some sense, kind of going door to door, apartment to apartment, you know, building to building to try to figure out uh, if if you can find Hamas. And that also requires the ability to sort of know who Hamas is. And that, that gets to your other point about the intelligence. Like you need to sort of know who are we looking for? Um, I think sometimes you think about these, these entities, it's like, it's almost like they, you know, they can be differentiated by the color of their hair or something like that. That's not the, that's not the case. It's an organization that's, you know, linked by political and military goals. And so unless you have, you know, very clear intelligence about who these individuals are that you're looking for, it can be very tricky trying to figure out you know, is this is this person somebody that that is uh, a threat to us that, that that we need to to deal with? So, I agree with you, and I think that this is also one of the the reasons why um, we both discussed last time worry about once the, in, the 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 ground incursion begins into Gaza, which has already started, what the exit sort of strategy is, because if the goal is to quote unquote eliminate Hamas, uh, that needs to be defined in some way. And so if it's if it's political leadership, then that's and you, and you know who the political leadership is, and you know where they are, that can be relatively straightforward. If it's to eliminate Hamas and really sort of degrade or eliminate their ability to carry out attacks on Israel, that's a that's a far broader operation, it seems to me. Uh, and it's it's not obvious that, you know, when your that mission has been accomplished. Right. Um, this is, again, what the United States found out about the, the Iraq war that the, the George W. Bush called said mission accomplished kind of early on in the in the war. Part of the mission had been accomplished, but the sort of long, the long game, the strategy of, you know, how do we, how do we leave and rebuild a society uh, that's been now devastated because of this war? That is, that was far from clear in, in Iraq. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be very clear in a couple of weeks and a couple of months uh, in Gaza either. So I think, I, I think Israel is, is, has a very strong challenge in front of them uh, for all the reasons that we've been talking about. One of the things we talked about last time was, what is the end game? What if is what if Israel succeeds in eliminating Hamas? What happens next? And we now have a little more clarity about what the at least the United States thinks should be the end game. A Anthony Blinken was uh, talking to the Senate Appropriations Committee, and uh, he said that quote What would make the most sense would be for an effective and revitalized Palestinian Authority to have governance and ultimately security responsibility for Gaza. He then continued to say, whether you can get there in one big step is a big question that we have to look at. And if you can't, then there are other temporary arrangements that may involve a number of other countries in the region. It may involve international agencies that would help provide for both security and governance. So the idea here is that, at least from the U.S. perspective, the Palestinian Authority, which runs the West Bank, would be the best choice to run Gaza. That has kind of always been the preference of of the West and Israel. Mm -hmm. So that's not, I guess, surprise. But this is, I think, the first time it's been made explicit as like a U.S. policy thing. Um, and then if this idea of an international group or groups 
having control of Gaza in the meantime. That's something that Israel has kind of alluded to, saying this is like a global problem. This isn't necessarily Israel's problem in figuring out who would who would be in charge of Gaza. So hearing this come from from uh, U.S. officials is is also interesting there. There are lots of problems with this. Uh, I think the, you know, the Palestinian Authority is like not popular among really anyone uh, from from Palestinians to to uh, other countries. So so putting them in charge, you know, it's, it's not like they have a lot of legitimacy within the Palestinian community. Um, and so that could be a, a tricky a, a tricky thing to do, um, installing the Palestinian Authority. If Israel puts them in power, uh, that that creates all sorts of issues for, for the Palestinian Authority itself as in terms of its its legitimacy and whether it speaks for the Palestinian people. So I, I think this is interesting to hear what the U.S. thinks might be the end game, but it doesn't necessarily answer a lot of questions about how we could actually get there. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, just for some context, I mean, this has been one of the sort of long-term ideas that the sort of international community has had going back a long ways, right? So whenever anybody talks about kind of like a two-state solution, one of the, the sort of pillars of that uh, two-state solution is finding one sort of governance uh, model for what the, the Palestinians will, will have. And so going back to like the Oslo Accords, one of the ideas was that you could have the Palestinian Authority governing both Gaza and the West Bank. The reason that that's, this very rarely kind of makes headway is that the Palestinians are in... in you know, divided over who they want to be governing them, right? So Hamas and uh, Fatah and Hamas and the Palestinian Authority more generally um, have very different ideological goals. They have different sort of understanding of what, uh, you know, how, how the Palestinian territory should be governed. And so therefore, it's not surprising that you wouldn't be able to find a solution where we just say the Palestinian Authority is going to be in control now, and that's going to be acceptable to the to the Palestinians. It has been tried uh, over and over and over again in various uh, forms. And every time that it's been tried, the Palestinians um, find that they don't have any agreement on, on this actually taking place. It's It seems to me that, that if you're going to get that type of outcome, the solution is not going to be sort of an imposition of that from the international community. You're going to have to do this by, uh, you know, so the, the old fashioned way of developing a little bit of trust between these two uh, organizations. Like, and, you know, if, if a mosque gets eliminated, let's say, in the sense of their political leadership being decimated and they're no longer in control, you're still going to have to build trust between the Palestinian Authority, Palestinian Authority, and the the people that live in Gaza, so that the people that live in Gaza actually accept the Palestinian Authority as a legitimate, you know, authority. Because if they don't, all you're going to have is is then presumably people in Gaza rising up and saying that this is not you know legitimate authority. And then you have terrorist attacks and and different uh, protests and violence and, and all the rest of it. It's, it's likely not not going to work. So for this to work, you have to have some type of process through diplomacy. You know, the, the international community can certainly help with this, but you're going to have to figure out a way to, to have the Palestinian Authority build some trust with the people in Gaza uh, itself. And it just seems like at the moment when, you know, Israel is, has a, a ground incursion into Gaza, this is the kind of last, last thing that the Palestinians at the moment are worried about. If we look forward and we see, you know, the, the Israel, let's say, has accomplished its goals, they've eliminated Hamas, then that might be the, the time where that's rife for having some type of, of process. Um, I'm just skeptical because it's been tried many, many times before. And ultimately, the Palestinians, as they should, have a right to say who governs them. And historically, they've not been able to come to an agreement that it should be the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority. And I think it's also just important for, for the listeners who you know, sort of conceptualize 
I think sometimes it's difficult to, to sort of think about Hamas and Gaza, Palestinian Authority, West Bank. These are separated areas. They're separated territories. And there's not a lot of interaction, communication uh, between the two. There's been attempts to sort of increase that level of communication interaction. But, but fundamentally, the people in Gaza have different views about, uh, or a lot of them do, how their, their society should be run than the people that, that the Palestinians are living in the West Bank. And so until you have a, some sort of, of creative idea to sort of have more interaction between Gaza and the West Bank, it seems to me, you're always going to run into this fundamental problem of differences about who, who the Palestinians prefer uh, to govern them based on ideology, based on policy preferences, based on all kinds of different things, but, but, but most notably a lack of trust between you know, the Palestinians living in the West Bank and Palestinians living in Gaza about the future of their, uh, what they would like to see as a Palestinian state. Until all those things become, um, you know, sort of dealt with in a, in a sort of diplomatic way, in a trust-building way, I, I think, unfortunately, this is not destined to be the, the solution. We have a question from Chris from San Mateo, California. Chris uh, asks, why Israel feels it must go into Gaza at this point? He points out that there are, there have been many previous attacks from Gaza on Israel that have not involved um, Israeli incursions into Gaza. Um, although I will say, this is me, not now, not Chris, but actually some have involved Israeli incursions into Gaza. So it's not as if... This isn't, this isn't the first time. This yeah. isn't the first time this has happened. And this attack maybe was um, a little bit different in scope and scale than, uh, than some of the previous attacks. Um, but yeah, I think it's a reasonable question. Why this Israeli policy response to the terrorist attacks? And I think uh, there, there are a few reasons. Um, I think there is certainly a domestic political imperative to act as any leader would um, when uh, their country is attacked, um, wanting to seem strong and, and reassure the population. And so, like, something must be done. There's, there's an element of that um, there, certainly. I think there is a, an aspect of actually trying to maintain security. You have what is a clear breach of all the security processes and procedures in place to prevent something like this from happening. And how do we be sure that this isn't going to happen again. Well, one way is to like go in and, and try to deal with the problem in a more effective way in the long term. You know, you could also station a bunch of troops at the border and just sit them there. Um, there's a kind of resource constraint there. So this may be, uh, there's a sense in which this kind of a, a military response is dealing with an existential threat in the long term. So I think maybe there's an aspect of actively actually maintaining the security of your country here. But but I want to talk about a, a third piece of this a little bit, Marcus, and I'm interested in your take on this. Folks have talked about the Israeli incursion into Gaza as a way of deterring future attacks. That is sending some kind of a signal of strength on the part of Israel that uh, we will not take this lightly, that we will respond um, by destroying the adversary if this kind of attack comes our way. And I, I think there's this kind of interesting question about deterrence here, because I'm not sure that Hamas is really deterrable in this way. We've talked about this before, that one of the things Hamas may, may want out of this exchange is to provoke Israel into this kind of response. And so it's not clear that, you know, Israel has attacked Hamas many, many times before. That hasn't succeeded in deterring Hamas from from conducting um operations against Israel. And so it's not clear that even this kind of an invasion is a deterrent to Hamas, but it may be a deterrent to others. Uh, so you can think about Israel 
as being in a kind of a dangerous neighborhood with a lot of entities around that don't even acknowledge its right to exist. And so from Israel's point of view, sending a signal of strength here against Hamas may send a deterrent signal to countries like Iran, to entities like Hezbollah, to organizations that are more concerned about uh, an Israeli potential Israeli counterattack on something that they do. And so if if Israel kind of lets this go in a way or or doesn't respond in what's seen as a very dramatic way, then maybe that sends a signal of weakness that opens the door for future attacks from others. What do you think about this argument? I think it's definitely true that one of the things that Israel is likely thinking about with this um ground incursion into Gaza in particular is is signaling the level of resolve that they have, right? So a decisive military action here is sending the signal that, look, any potential challenger, whether it's Hezbollah, you know, whether it's Iran proper, whoever, we're we're committed to uh defending ourselves with uh significant military action if it if it's required, right? So I think I think you're right that one of the things that they're trying to do is is project kind of project power to other regional actors in the in the Middle East. I think that's true. On the other hand, it's it seems to me that the, the United States and Israel have such a strong uh, security relationship that I'm not positive that that's really all that necessary. In other words, I, I, I think that Iran um, and Hezbollah, Syria, realize that if we were in a situation where um, the United States, where uh, Israel was facing some type of, of military action or even a terrorist action uh, from Hezbollah in a, in a serious way. I think that they believe that the United States would respond uh, militarily to, to support and, pr- and protect Israel. That's that's the reason why uh, the United States was doubling down on on that level of, of commitment and resolve by sending, you know, the the carriers to the to the Mediterranean so that you could show we're, we're going to project power here as well. I th- I think, and, that, and of course no one knows this, but I, I mean I th- I think that Iran believes that if if they were to do something uh, significant in Israel, that the United States would would respond. So it's not clear to me anyway that this signaling and resolve is actually all that necessary when you have the U.S. Uh, uh, support. I take it you're going to disagree with that. I don't know that it's credible that the United States is going to get involved in a border skirmish between Hezbollah and Israel, right? Or some of these other groups. I think it's much more credible the U.S. gets involved if Iran poses a, a real threat to Israel. But if but if Israel is acting in order to deter these non-state actors as well, then I don't think it can just look back at the United States. And of course, this extended deterrence threat, extended deterrence is when one country like kind of extends its protection over another, right? And the extended deterrence threat that the United States makes against Iran in defense of Israel is weaker than Israel's deterrent directly against Iran. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's always harder to make the case that some country is going to come to our aid here, right? Um, so I think Israel would prefer to have its own deterrent and not be relying, not be dependent on the United States to deter these other countries. Doesn't mean we, the United States, shouldn't try, but I think Israel can't make policy that way, right? It's no, and it knows the U.S. has its back, at least at the moment. But if you're Israel, you want to be able to send a signal of strength to all these parties and not be not be depending on the United States. I I mostly agree with that. I, and I, I want to make a distinction also because you're right. Like I'm I'm not talking so much about what we, we think is like border skirmishes between Lebanon and, and Israel, let's say, right, where you know Hezbollah is, is involved, but what we're talking about is sort of like 
these non-state actors who are performing military actions, maybe for for Iran more generally, but you know Iran is sort of like on the on the sideline. I'm I'm thinking more about whether it, part of what Israel's calculus here is projecting uh, uh, strength and a signal of resolve to to Iran, the state of Iran, and saying we're going into Gaza for lots of different reasons. One of which is to show you like how serious we're taking this, and we're not gonna we're not gonna allow anything. Uh, to happen. So that sends a signal to Hezbollah, of course, but I think it sends a signal to Iran, the state and says, you know, like you were saying, we're going to, we're going to protect our own security interests. My point is only, I think Israel firmly believes, has a strong belief that if Iran, the state were to get involved in some type of military action against, against Israel, you think about like the worst, worst case scenario. We talked about this last time, you know, some kind of like World War Three, Middle East, you know, broader war or something like that. I believe that Israel knows that the United States would come to its aid doesn't mean that's guaranteed uh and so you know they they have to take that into their into account and part of the calculus would be that the united states decides not to or what depending on what happens in a in a u.s leadership transition you know maybe you have a, a politician becomes president that doesn't want to you know get involved in the military. who knows what, what happens so they have to always take that into account the future uncertainty issue but i i do still think that israel uh can believes that they can count on on the united states in the case of the sort of worst case scenario, which is Iran, the state becomes, you know, involved in this in some way. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring kind of the U.S. perspective in here. Chris from San Mateo didn't ask about this, but I think you can kind of ask a similar question about why the United States decided to so strongly signal its general support for Israel, right? Not necessarily unlimited support, but but general support for Israel's right to defend itself and the Biden visit and all that that we've discussed. And I think it's actually a similar set of answers to that question as to why Israel feels it needs to go into Gaza. So I think there's a, you know, there's strong domestic support for Israel in, in the United States. So any, you know, U.S. leader has to take that into account. I think the United States thinks it's actually improving the situation in terms of like the security situation, in terms of uh, aiding in Israel's fight against Hamas, specifically in deterring Iran. We've talked about that a lot. And I think from the U.S. perspective, getting aid to Gaza is like a big, important policy point, right? Trying to get um, additional aid in, trying to get people out. And I, I saw some news today that we have kind of the first group of hundreds of people leaving through Egypt through an agreement that the United States was able to broker with with Hamas and Qatar and uh, um, and Israel and Egypt to try to get uh, get these people out. Um, so there, there's that aspect to it too. Uh, aspect to it too. But then there's this other piece, which is about signaling. And I think what the United States is doing here, and we've had some other questions asking about, like, what does this mean for China-Taiwan? Someone always asks, no matter what's going on, what does this mean for, for China-Taiwan? You know, what, what's happening here is the U.S. is signaling its dependability as an ally to the world, right? I mean, this is a, a very clear signal that the U.S. is standing by an ally. And I think it's not hard to imagine other situations Russia and Ukraine and and China and Taiwan, where that dependability as an ally is an important thing that the U.S. wants to, to emphasize. And I mean, I know we're all kind of focused on this particular conflict and on the Middle East right now, but I got to say it, I, you know, this, this podcast is about nothing if not speaking the truth, Marcus. And the Middle East is not our number one priority. It's not. Our number one strategic, strategic priority is not the Middle East. The, the long-term strategic threats to the United States are in Asia, right, with China and are with Russia and, you know, countries like Iran or 
entities like Hamas are way down the list, right? They're way down the list. And so what the U.S. is doing in terms of providing support to Israel is in part a signal that affects its other strategic concerns, particularly China and Russia. I mean, I I guess I mostly agree with you that the... You know the sort of Obama's um, we're know, pivoting. policy goal, we're, the pivot, to, the pivot to Asia. We're pivoting. I still think that there's some there's some uh, good logic to why that that should happen. I agree with you that China, uh, in particular, is is the area that we should be concerned. About. I mean, I, I think always the, the, the Middle East is always going to be uh, high on on the U.S. agenda, part, partially because I think the U.S. does have an interest in making sure that there is stability in the region, as does you know the the European Union, and basically everybody benefits when. The Middle East is stable, and we're not having you know uh, the massive atrocities and civilians dying, and you know for for lots of different reasons we want to have a stable stable Middle East. But I think all else being equal, you're right. The United States would would rather be in a position where it can focus on its relationship with China, uh, clearly with with Russia as well, but China being being the main one. And part of what the U.S. is doing, I also agree, uh, is showing that it can be counted on. And so if you're if you're China thinking that. You know, this while everybody's distracted in Ukraine and distracted in in Israel and in Gaza, this might be a good opportunity to, to you know do something in Taiwan. Let's say the United States is saying, not so fast. We are going to support our our allies, and that message is is meant for the Ukrainians, it's meant for the Israelis, uh, and it's meant for I think the Taiwanese as well to say we're with you. Like this is this is just what we do. We provide support to our allies, and we're not going to back down, even if it's costly. Uh, we're willing to, to keep that up. So I think I think you're right. Um, th- there's one other aspect to this, uh, the, the recent news that we didn't talk about, which I found kind of interesting. I did want to get your take, uh, Jeff. There was a report that Saudi Arabia, I think I have this right, is still basically going forward or, or still interested in pursuing this kind of like big uh, Israel-Saudi no- diplomatic normalization deal, which I, I found kind of interesting in the sense that um, this is happening under uh, the context of essentially a war occurring. You know, the Saudis are, are coming out and being like, no, this is not going to deter us. Um, if if the idea here by Hamas was partially to send a signal that they don't like, you know, Israel creating these agreements with, um, you know, states like Saudi Arabia, doesn't matter to us. We're going to move forward. and And so... Uh, there's some indication that what Biden, as we talked about, Biden was sort of pushing for um, in creating this this deal between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia, and that some point to as being one of, not perhaps the main cause, but one of the causes of the attack uh, by Hamas and, and expressing their, um, you know, being against the, such a deal. I find it interesting that Saudi Arabia sort of used this moment in time to kind of double down on uh, their desire to have this normalization uh, agreement with Israel. So I don't know. Did that did that strike you at all? Do you find this you know uh, uh, perplexing, or or were you not surprised that they would they would do this? It is interesting. I mean, so the defense minister, Saudi defense minister, is in Washington this week as we're recording, uh, meeting with various people. And one of the kind of things coming out of this meeting is a, a continued interest in this kind of bargain in normalization talks. But I think I don't know. I, I think this is more of a like once everything settles down, kind of a kind of a bargain. Like I would be very surprised if Saudi signed an agreement with Israel like next week. Um, right. I think that we're going to have to see an end to active hostilities before an agreement is formally signed. But it doesn't mean that negotiations can't happen, that talks can't continue. And I think this visit and the kinds of things that these leaders are talking about sends a signal that. 
this isn't a deal breaker for Saudi Arabia, which goes to my original point that that fundamentally Saudi leadership doesn't care about the Palestinian question at all, um, about Palestinian people, and is focused on, you know, what's best for its own kind of security. And that is a normalized relationship with Israel as a hedge against Iran. And it, the the idea of forestalling that kind of security progress, you know, because of this conflict that's going on with Hamas, which Saudi Arabia is not in any way a friend of. Uh, it's not tremendously surprising, although the kind of the optics of this are, kind of, are I think, are, I think quite interesting. The optics are interesting. And uh, the timing is certainly interesting that, you know, this would be occurring on, on literally, you know, what are we on day like three or four of the, the ground incursion into, into Gaza, where things are right. looking like they're going to get uh, worse before they get better. That Saudi Arabia used this opportunity to, to sort of say, no, we're still committed to this. And might, this might make it harder. I think it was, that was one of the comments is like, yeah, things are going to be a little harder now because of this, but we're we're moving forward. You know, I wanted to turn the tables on you, Jeff. I know you normally are the ones that ask the questions and and drive the agenda, and that's normally fine. Uh, but sometimes what happens is you spring these like new topics on me, and I uh, don't know what you're talking about, and it sort of takes me a couple minutes to catch up. I know to the listener, this is that doesn't seem that way because I'm I'm able to sort of you know quickly do that. But you know, it's, it's sometimes nice to kind of spring a question on you. There was uh, just today, I believe it was today, maybe it was yesterday. A summit in the UK about artificial intelligence. You might have seen this. I, I saw that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the output of which was 28 governments, including China, including the United States, signed a declaration, a piece of paper, agreeing to cooperate on evaluating the risks of artificial intelligence. Uh, this was a summit that was attended. This was, the Biden didn't go, obviously. Uh, Kamala Harris went. Um, heads of state went, you know, it was, it was a big deal, you know, lots of countries, Elon Musk was there. So Elon Musk, yeah, uh, he's going to be there. Yeah. He's going to be streaming. Uh, I think it's a zoom conversation tomorrow. It's a zoom conversation tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, so, so I will, I will make light of, of his participation, but I do think it's an interesting sort of development that you have a sort of, what some are calling like a global summit on AI. Uh, a recognition that maybe uh, in order for AI not to like destroy the world, like we need to come to some agreement as to how this should be governed or at least start talking about it uh, in, in, in a similar way that they did in, in the climate change or the Kyoto Protocol and other other summits. So I'm wondering. That's exactly the right parallel. I was just going to say this is, this is just <laughs> like climate change, right? So so like just listening to the the speeches that people are making, right? Vice President Kamala Harris says, quote, there are additional threats that also demand our action. Threats that are currently caused, causing harm, and to many people also feel existential, right? The, the threat is there, right? The this is, is a very – let's do something. I, let's I, do I something. Hear, yes. Like I hear the voices of all these leaders crying out saying, let's do something about this potential issue. What are they going to do, Marcus? This is a declaration of – yeah, maybe this is something we should look into. <laughs> it's like on, on the list of declar like like things you can declare. Yes, let's right. declare. I, I declare we should look yeah. into AI. No, I actually don't. I, I don't bring this up uh, because I think it's it's at all sort of interesting from an AI governance perspective. I'm, I'm incredibly skeptical that you know anything will come of this. Who knows? Maybe it will. I think it's more interesting that that China was not only invited but came. And engaged and was like part of the discussion, right? So we just we just talked about this sort of pivot to Asia and the importance of other other countries. And of of all the sort of, you know, if I'm China, I might be looking at this and saying, like, this is another sort of Western led, 
liberal international order. They're going to get together. They're going to create some sort of treaty or international law that's going to be uh, discriminatory towards us. This is always the way that uh, it works. And so we're not going to participate. I don't know. China's not opposed to China's not opposed to meetings. We talked last time about the, the Xi and Putin meeting where they got together. It was like the, the summit of the like, you know, discontents. Like everybody's like this. The, the whole world's out to get us. They're like putting us up to the sidelines, like the Western world. You know, they, they, they can't be trusted and all this. Right. And now a week later, China's going, contributing to the very thing it seems like they were just talking about is the problem. So I, I don't look at this from an AI perspective. I look at this from China engaging in the liberal international order, and I'm actually somewhat heartened to see them do that. So am I reading too much into this? Tell me, Marcus, where in the party hierarchy is China's vice minister of science and technology? who was the lead official attending this meeting on behalf of China. All right, I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer the, to this, right? I, I don't, like, I'm not a this China guy could be I, 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 Xi's like, could, like best pal, you know? They pick somebody off from the street and they say, hey, buddy, you want to go yeah, you know, to yeah, the UK I mean, for a weekend? I don't know who this right. is. Maybe so, you're right. Maybe yeah. you're right. Maybe you're right. But, but I will say, if you're China, even sending like a low-level emissary, right? Like they, they know that it's going to be reported that China was there. So, so one interpretation of this, of course, is that if, if it's true that this person is sort of lower level, you might say, okay, well, China's participating, but they're just kind of shunning it by sending like a low level emissary. And by the way, I apologize to this person. If they're high up in the, in the CCP, I might. I mean, they, they might be. I don't know. My apologies. Right. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't have no idea who this person is. Yeah. We, I apologize as well to, to uh, the China vice minister of science and technology. Right. It could be like they're like second in line to be like, yeah, exactly. Who knows? So, so assuming that's not the case. By sending somebody that that the West maybe doesn't know too much about, they might be signaling like, well, we'll we're going to participate in your little summit, but we're going to send somebody that's like so like, you know, sort of not important to us that we're signaling like we don't really care. That's one interpretation. Certainly Xi didn't show up. Right. But I think another interpretation and me being the sort of optimistic guy that I am, maybe China is signaling, at least in some areas, we do see potential for cooperation with the United States. It could very well be the case that China is looking at the data as we are and realizing AI is kind of scary. AI has the potential to hurt us just as much as it's, you know, potential to that we could use it to hurt, to hurt others if we want to. It's a threat to, to not only the international system, but it's a threat to China. It might be good if there are going to be rules written down, uh, treaties signed, international law created to be there when those rules are being written, as opposed to saying, no, this is just the West. We don't trust them or whatever. Let them create their little rules and we're not going to we're not going to pay attention to them. So I'm actually heartened to see China saying, no, we're going to we're going to play a role in this. Again, might be a minimal role, might be just sort of like window dressing. But they were there and it was reported that they were there and they were invited and they accepted the invitation. So to me, I'm actually I'm kind of happy today about that. Yeah, OK, I think you're reading a little too much into this. I mean, the the, the fact that China was there. So. You know, China has its own initiative for AI safety. I'm sorry, it's called the Global Initiative for AI Governance. You know, like this is not a, a weird thing for China to be involved in at all as a country that has a lot of, you know, science and technology and AI stuff happening. It would make sense for them to be involved. So I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it's not weird to me that they attended, um, especially since all these other countries are attending. China doesn't want to miss it. I, I'm torn about this because, like, on the one hand, like, clearly this doesn't mean much in terms of global AI governance, right? Like, we're going to agree to have further meetings. That's, you know, nothing Nothing uh, leaders like more than meetings. So that, that makes sense. 
But on the other hand, this is what you do when you're trying to kind of build up a apparatus, a structure to take on some big issue like this, something like nuclear proliferation or killer robots or, you know, the ban on landmines, all of these kind of um, agreements that have taken taken hold, that have tried to limit the spread of some technology around the world or the limit the use of it, this is how you start it, right? You set up a, a meeting, you get all the countries to agree this is something we should continue to talk about, and then you have further meetings that kind of drill down on, well, what what can we actually do here? So I'm not totally, I'm very pessimistic about the prospects for some kind of real useful AI governance, given the interests of the countries involved. But but if you're going to do it, this is how you do it. You start off with a meeting like this, gets the gets everybody in a room, agrees to to further meetings, and then you you take it on from there. So it's not it's certainly not bad news, right? That these countries are talking, but I'm not sure we should come from this to oh, we're going to have an agreement soon on on dealing with AI. Okay, that's fair enough. I will just to double down on my reading too much into this. I will note Russia was not there, right? So China was there. And they they participated. They went against the the you know sort of the vein of like this is the liberal. And if you look if you look at the other countries that were involved, I mean they're they're mostly these sort of what's I mean there there are some African countries uh, on the list, some Asian countries, but for the most part they're sort of like Western European, you know sort of like you know old school liberal order type of countries. And you see China playing ball and 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 joining and signing on to this. So I, I, I you know Jeff you could you could talk to me to your blue in the face like I, I I am looking at this and I'm saying like this is indicative of something. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm I am you know I see significance in the fact that China unlike Russia would show up and and participate in this. I think does, does Russia does Russia even have computers? I don't even know. That's a good that's a good point. It would be so bizarre if if a Russian official were at this thing. This is like a UK thing like like they're going to invite the country that's in, that we're like kind of at war with that that invaded Ukraine that would be crazy that's true but china i still feel the same i feel the same way about china like it's a uk thing right but you should china's china hasn't invaded anybody today so we're we're uh, sure. they're still they're still okay i will also note saudi arabia was there and signed the agreement which is interesting was iran iran there? iran was not okay iran was not yeah well in yeah. the show notes we'll post the actual agreement of the countries who who signed it okay Fair enough. I also like how in the agreement, so astute students will notice this, the countries represented were, and then it's it's listed in bullet points, Australia, Brazil, Canada, Chile, China, European Union. Is European Union a country? I feel like that's not right. No, I'm going to, I'm going to say no. <laughs> Is this a... This this took place in the UK. Was this a dig to like? Was this was this like an intentional sort of like? Oh, we're calling the, U, the EU a country, not the sort of like big international, you know, alliance and, and treaty that it is. And we're sort of we're just sort of you know saying it's smaller than it is by calling it a country. It's also interesting because countries in the European Union are, are also listed. So it's it's like France is also. Well, I listed. think it, it's because the EU is represented by right. like you know the EU Commission official or something right so right so they right. they were listed separately because there was somebody representing the eu I, I i'm just pointing out that it says the countries represented were do i have to EU. explain diplomatic protocol to you marcus <laughs> it's kind of interesting so this I, there's some symbolism around so this took place at bletchley park which yeah. was kind of like the like where world war ii code breaking was developed right mm -hmm. um and so there's some symbolism there of the of the location where this this summit was held or this meeting was held 
right, sort of harnessing the benefits of technology, but also in the context of, of war and realizing like the potential dangers, I think, you know, yeah. that that technology represents. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Interesting. Well, we'll have to follow this development. We can we can tune in what the next meetings in South Korea. Do you think we can get an invite to these? Are they going to have like NGOs and academics go to these things? Well, frankly, I was a little disappointed not to be invited to this one. But I mean, but I, I, Elon I, Musk, you know, if, if Musk is getting invited, I mean, I told you I went to that AI conference in Australia. That was a big hit. So I, I don't know um, why my name wasn't floated. <laughs> I guess they, they figured out it's too busy. That's yeah, must be that's what right. it is. That's right. Well, you have a podcast to record every week, like clockwork. I got the podcast. I'm chair. I got all kinds of things going on. They knew this. And so they just they, they didn't want to make me feel bad by having to, to decline. Hey, Marcus, I think we should leave it there. We covered a lot of ground today. I couldn't agree with you more, Jeffrey. Uh, it's nice seeing you. <laughs> it's good to see you. And like I said, you, 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 you sound good to me, but maybe a little orange juice, vitamin C, you'll be okay. Yeah, I'll be back, back on my feet before you know it. Everyone listening, I'd like to invite you to send an email to us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or visit speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk where you can leave a voicemail like Darius did today and, uh, and get your voice on the air. Uh, we'd love to hear any questions you have, particularly about the conflict that's happening um, between Israel and Hamas, but elsewhere, whatever whatever questions you have as well. Um, we're kind of assembling these. We'll do a, a mailbag episode one of these days. Um, so we appreciate your, your taking the time to ask us questions. Otherwise, Marcus, great to see you. Let's do this again next week. I think we shall. I've been... Um... I've been I've been recently watching a lot of ASMR videos, and so I, I find that it, the, the, for those of you that don't know, ASMR is this sort of like poorly understood sort of neuroscientific uh, phenomenon where, upon hearing certain words or seeing certain things, uh, people sometimes, not everybody, get like what can only be described as sort of like a tingling sensation in their in their like head, like on their scalp. Does this? Do you ever get this, Jeff? Do you have no. this? See, none of this stuff works on me. I've, I've tried the videos. How about in the 1990s when there were those like blurry, like, like things that you look at. And then like, if you looked at it long enough or like, like through it, you would see something. Magic Remember, like, eye. Ma Magic eye. Could I, you, did that work on you? I, yes, I can do that. So I can't do that. So like, I'm a big Dave Matthews band fan. Remember two things. The album sure. had that as their, <laughs> as their cover. I could never see it. Oh so God. I don't know what that is. You're I don't so know old. if that's so I, old. I, I'm so old, but okay. <laughs> but any, in any case, so I can't do that, but I can do ASMR really well. And so anyway, I've been watching a lot of ASMR videos more for like a scientific uh, endeavor, which is I'm trying to figure out like what types of sounds uh, work for me. And it's some combination of like sort of tapping, but it has to be like a particular kind of rhythm and then like a, a scratching oftentimes will do it, but not all scratching. So I, I'm still, it's, it's still under study. I don't have any firm sort of like, you know, conclusions yet. Uh, but anyway, the, the point that I'm trying to raise here is that I've been very conscious about how I sound and sort of sounds more generally. Uh, and so I'm now kind of self-conscious about my own voice because I've been sort of listening to so many people's, you know, so many other people's voices. Uh, and I'm not going to try to do ASMR on you now, although that would be fun to do, but I, I am like more and more cognizant of kind of like one's audio, like as a, as a, you know, as a, as a thing. So anyway, you sound fine to me. I don't, I don't sense any sort of cold or COVID or anything else. Excellent. Well, so I'm glad we settled that. Uh, Although I will Marcus. say uh, we're, we're recording this on November 1st in Williamsburg, where it's now evidently winter. I mean, we just had, you know, 80 degree weather two days ago, and now it's like uh, very cold outside. It is cold. So it's unsurprising to me that your body would be in that extreme change of climate. 
might be like sort of reacting and your immune system is a little lower. You know, that often happens, I think, with temperature changes. Oh, thank you, Dr. Holmes. I, I feel yeah. better. We really got to the bottom of that one. Anyway, I think you're fine. <laughs> Great.